verse verse 8. Psalm 86, verse 8. There, uh, David makes a very important observation, and uh, it's full of glory, full of gospel. Uh, Verse 8, There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. The uh, title for the message uh, this afternoon is um, two verbs, do, question mark, done, exclamation mark. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the, in the church where I serve, they have, um, they have run an evangelistic program. It's called Discipleship Explored, and actually it's not intended to be an evangelistic program. Uh, it is intended to be sort of congregational building, but we're using it as, a, as an evangelistic activity, and, and we're, we're really profiting by that. Um, it, I'm loving following the, the seven sessions of Discipleship Explored. But in session number four, that was, uh, I think it was three weeks ago, in session number four, um, there was um, an interview that was being held with a man in India who was converted from the Buddhist religion and had become a Christian. And he described the the change in his life, a change from uncertainty to a conviction. And that, that uncertainty was a torment to him. He lived in, a, in the uncertainty about what was God's feeling about me? Does God like me? God love me? That seemed way too far to imagine being possible, but does God li- like me? Does God care about me? Um, he, was a, he was a Buddhist, and like every other world religion, Buddhism requires that you do certain things. You have to do certain things to get God to like you. Uh, Buddhism, like all other world religions, has sets of rules and has developed systems that you are to follow and observe very carefully in order to make an impression upon your God, upon this God, and uh, to make a favorable impression, to win that God's attention and favor to make him like you, because when he likes you, he will bless you. For instance, uh, this man was a Buddhist, and so like several other Eastern religions, um, he believed, and, and and before he was a Christian, this is what he worked at all the time. He believed that if he was good, God would bless him In this way, when he died, he would come back to life as something better than what he had been during his life on earth previously. So you sort of work your way up the chain 
uh, to the highest kind of levels of blessing before you enter into a state of, of eternal bliss, I suppose, according to the Buddhist religion. And, um, and so you had to do good things in order to rise on the ladder to become better. And uh, if the gods, because Buddhism believes in many gods, or no god at all, it depends on its interpretation. But anyways, if you, if, if you did good, you would rise, but if you did badly, you would go down and uh, you would get punished. So after you die, if you, die, if you died a, a poor man, you would come back as a, as a beggar, not just poor, but perhaps disabled. And you would have to beg for survival. This, um, this man said, that he never had peace in his heart. He was always worried. He was afraid because how in the world can a human being impress their God favorably? How can a, a human being be good? Is it ever possible for a person to actually be better now than he was before. And when you take the, the whole measure of a person, if you weigh on a balance his whole life, can any human in the eyes of the divine being, can any human being actually be good enough. Any person who is willing to be honest with the, his own conscience will know that those answers, those questions cannot be answered with any peace. Those, those questions cannot be answered in any way that gives assurance. Because every person has in his conscience, a deep awareness that he is broken, that he is polluted, that his thoughts are away from God and against God rather than for him. And, we, and the only impression that we leave with God as the whole sum of our lives is the impression that we are evil and not good. This is definitely the perspective which David expresses here in Psalm 86. Not surprising, because if we know anything about David, we know that he's very candid about his sinfulness. I would be embarrassed to be as open and free in describing how sinful I am the way David does. He's quite amazing, and I praise God for him. But anyways, in Psalm 86, he, he, also, he, he's also, he alludes, he's not, he's not trying to teach the point, but he alludes to the fact that he is very sinful. For instance, in verse 4, he says, he says to God, Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul, for, for you, O Lord, are good and forgiving. 
David asks God to gladden his soul, but he knows in the end that the only way that God will gladden his soul, the only way he's ever going to experience anything pleasant or hopeful or joyful is if God forgives him. He has to ask God for forgiveness because he does things that make God angry. And if God were just to deal with him on the basis of who he is and what he does, well, then God would, it wouldn't go well for him. But God will gladden him because he can ask God for forgiveness. In verse 13, we have perhaps a less direct reference to, the, to this awareness in David's own heart. And an awareness which we all share and every human being shares. In verse 13, he says, For great is your steadfast love toward me. This is the, the awesome love of God. Great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. Uh, Sheol in the Old Testament, the ESV is... Um, uh, unlike, let's say, the NIV, NIV always translates Sheol um, uh, as the grave or as hell, but uh, the ESV has chosen to simply transliterate, so give us the, what the Hebrew sounds like and represent the Hebrew word. Um, Sheol almost always means the grave, the place where you, you, your body is buried, a dead body is buried. But sometimes... It, it definitely means the place of eternal punishment. And quite often it, it can mean both things. And here I, I think it has some of that sense of you have delivered my soul from the place, not just from dying, because David knows that he will die one day, but God has saved my soul from punishment beyond Beyond death. Um, it, it's God's steadfast love that has prevented him from going to hell. He, he could never prevent from himself from going to hell by, by what he does. And he could never accomplish his ascent, his ascent into heaven by good things that he does, it is only the steadfast love of God that is going to prevent us from going to hell, and it's only the steadfast love that's going to lift us to get to heaven. All the gods, every god in the world, and this is Researchers have done the work and they have examined this point carefully. Every God in the world demands that its worshipers do certain things. And when we do those things, then the gods will like us. But David's God isn't like that at all. And this may be really important to you to, to pay careful attention if you've been 
drifting, I'm asking you to come back on a point now because I'm going to share with you something that may be a revelation to you, and it's a really, really important one if you think of your eternal destiny. So please pay careful attention. There's a lot of people who fail to see that God is different, that God is special. Most people, the vast majority of people, um, worship a God uh, that, that demands certain things, and if you do them, you'll be, you, I will like you, the God says. But even most Christians are thinking that way. A, a survey was recently held where uh, people were asked, if they agreed with the following statement. So think about this statement, if you would. If a person lives a morally good life, he will go to heaven. Repeat that. If a person lives a morally good life, he will go to heaven. So people were asked, that, were, that, that statement was made, and they were asked, do you agree with that statement? If a person lives a morally good life, he will go to heaven. The vast majority of people throughout the survey said, yes, that is a correct statement. And of course, we would say, well, if a person is not a Christian, if he worships other gods, or if he imagines that he worships other gods, or a god, then this is the answer they said. If a person lives a morally good life, he will go to heaven. The, the surprising and, and tragic thing is, is that the majority of Christians, a very large majority of Christians, 70% of Christians said that's a true statement. If a person lives a morally good life, he will go to heaven. When I... I preached this recently at Streetlight at the church where I serve. And one person jumped up and said, yep, that's a right statement. <laughs> People will do that at Streetlight sometimes. Uh, that's a good, it's a right statement. And, and, uh, well, I feel sorry for that man because he doesn't know God, if that's true. God the God of, of this book, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, he isn't like that. He is different from all gods. He is abounding in, in steadfast love, and he delights to forgive us. If, if we've done evil things, God doesn't shut the door on us. He's the kind of God who, who likes to be known as somebody who sees somebody falling and he picks them up. He's the kind of God who wants to be known as someone who sees another person and he's thirsty and he wants to give them something to drink. He's the God who wants to help, to lift, to assist, to heal, to give hope. That's what we heard in the call to worship as well from Isaiah 57. 
This is what the high and exalted one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in the high and holy place, but also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. That's the reputation that God wants to have. I'm the sort of God who delights to lift the fallen, to heal the broken, to restore the contrite. I'm the sort of God who sinners can approach and discover that the door hasn't been thrown shut on them. And that's, that's exactly David's point in this psalm. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. Because who is the person that God loves? Verse 2, we read, the sort of person that God loves is the person that trusts God. Preserve my life, we read in verse 2, for I am godly, save your life, save your servant who trusts in you. God doesn't love the person who does great things. He loves the person that trusts in him. And verse 3, the person that God loves, be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you I cry all the day. God loves the person who cries to him, who who reaches out to him because there's no other place to turn. I cry out to you, O God. In verse 4, who's the person that God loves? Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. The person who lifts up his soul is the one that God loves. He doesn't have to, he doesn't have to change his soul. He doesn't have to wash his soul to be white as snow. When, when we read in, uh, in the Old Testament this idea of lifting up my soul then we should, we should think of the, that to refer to the whole person. There, there's become this sort of pietistic idea that the soul is that, that aspect of, of our spirituality which uh, Christians want to save. We don't care about anything else. We just want to save your soul as though it were something separate from our, our existence. But um, the soul in the Hebrew way of thinking, in the Old Testament way of thinking, is our entire existence. Like uh, the, the very first time we come across the word in Genesis 2, we read that God created Adam out of the, the different elements of soil and, and, and water and iron and, and I don't know what all the elements of the human body are, but a calcium and so on. Um, God God arranged all the bits and pieces and he created a human being and then he bent over and, he, and God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and he became a living soul. That's what the Hebrew word is. He became a, a, a living soul. And so to lift up my soul to God means to lift up this broken, scarred, dirty, broken, sinful, defiled, polluted person that I am in all my entirety. I lift up 
myself. I just lift myself to God. To you, God, I lift up my soul. Gladden my soul, O Lord. Gladden who I am. That's, that's who God loves. And I could go on to, to identify who's the person that God loves according to the psalm. It's not, it's never the person who has become good, but it's the person who asks God for deliverance. The God who reaches out to him for mercy. The gods, when David says, there is none like you among the gods, the gods, they say, if, if you do good, I'll rescue you. Our God says, if you cry out to me, if you confess your sins to me, if you lift up your, your defiled soul, but you lift it up to me because it's all you've got. If you don't hide behind the idea that you are good and you ask for mercy and grace, I will forgive you, I will help you, I will comfort you. That's the way the psalm ends in verse 17. Show to me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may, be, may see and be put to shame because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. God says to you, to you who lift up your, your soul to him, and you say, I haven't done anything that deserves your attention, O oh Lord but I lift myself up to you and I cry out for your mercy. God says to you when you do that, I'll do anything for you. I'll do everything for you. Because with him is steadfast love. He is like no other God. He is different not so much because of his great and awesome power, although in that regard, God is different too, of course. I mean, all the gods claim to have great power and, and so on. And our God is, has all power. That's where everything comes from. But as different as he is on the basis of, how, of his great power, he is especially different from all gods uh, according to his love. He works like no other God. And this is something that David couldn't really know in detail. He simply had to trust that God would work out forgiveness for him. He, he knew that the priests were serving in the temple and they offered animals. They would kill them and manipulate their blood and, 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 and burn parts of the animal on the altar. And the priests would declare the forgiveness of sins and the blessing of God upon the members. David understood those things, but he didn't understand, he could not possibly understand how God was actually accomplishing the forgiveness of sins. He only gave these signs of it. But that didn't matter. David knows that God does things no other God would even think to do. 
And therefore, God is going to do things that David could not even begin to imagine what it would be. So it didn't matter. He doesn't know. God, David trusts in God. My God is going to do things that nobody would ever imagine. We have seen the things which even the angels in heaven long to understand. To us has been granted to know how God would fix the problem of sin, how he's going to lift up those who have fallen, how he's going to heal those who are broken. And... and, uh, and lift up those who are contrite. We have learned what God did, and that only, and what He did, and knowing it only makes the mystery deeper because God did something unimaginable. He sent His own Son, God, the eternal God, God the Word, the second person of the Trinity, laid aside His divinity and and was born, entered into the womb of a woman and was born and and fell into the care of of a father and a mother and underwent circumcision. Part of his flesh cut away in order that he may re-enter into a relationship with God, his Father. And so that the covenant curse may fall upon him, which inevitably, step by step, it did. God did the unimaginable. No deeds can compare to his. He sent his son to do the good we failed to do and to suffer for the evil that we did do. He suffered it because we could never endure it. He has done it all. Nothing more could be done nor needs to be done than what he had done. All the gods of the world, they say, you must do this You must do that. If you don't do these things, you will be punished. But our God says, I love you so much that I've just done it all for you. Just just come to me and rest in the work that I've done for you. It's done. The God we worship is so, so awesome. He's just so unique. It's a God who loves. And so tell the world about this God. Tell the world about the God you have come to know. Tell the world about the God that not even, the majority of Christians don't even seem to understand how unique he is. Somehow, Somehow the world hasn't heard about him yet. Surely, when you tell people about him, they will want to know all about him, all there is to know about him. About a God who doesn't say, come and do, but rather a God who says, come, 
it's done. Amen. In response to the preaching, let us sing, Turn to me, O Lord, and heed me, Psalm 86, verse 1, 2, and 3.